0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. (coughs) Before you, maybe, is a picture now of Hikmet. He's a retired forestry technician from Turkey. In his hands is a picture of a barren hillside. Behind him is that same hillside covered in millions of trees. He was the head of the forestry department in his region and over his 24-year tenure he took to heart that he was going to make that barren hillside something different. So with the work of specialized teams and the local community they planted over 25 million saplings. The work began in 1978, and when he finally retired in 2002, there was a noticeable difference in that hillside when his job began. The project actually lives on beyond him, not just in the trees there, but others who continue to help out with that. And they consider him a bit of a local hero now, as that barren landscape now is a vast oasis for all creatures great and small, um, which has become quite a remarkable uh, transformation. I love this picture because it shows something that um, sometimes we understand but visually don't fully grasp, and that is transformation. Transformation, we hear that word, um, we, we understand what it means, but there is a depiction of it. And that theme of transformation is one that runs throughout all of our readings this morning as well. It's one that reminds us that um, those who draw near to God um, have a transformation. Their hearts are transformed in the love that they have in that wonderful passage on love in Corinthians. But then we see these visual transformations in Moses and then in Jesus as well, um, which is an outward depiction of this union with God that takes place in the quiet of their own hearts. While there's so many rife teachings in all these passages, um, may we spend just a few moments in Luke and look at this topic of transformation in the transfiguration this morning and the transformation that the Lord purposes to bring in the lives of the disciples both then and now for we who would draw near to him as well. If you follow along in your Bibles or you follow along on the screen, we're beginning there in verse 28. It's a passage we know well. It picks up on the heels of Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000, picks up on the heels of Jesus asking the disciples who they say he is, picks up on the heels after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that To embrace that will come with denial of self, death to self, and it will come at a high cost. On the heels of all of these things, Jesus now invites his inner band, Peter and James and John, to go with him to pray, stealing away from the throes of ministry up on this mount to be with him. And then we read in verse 29 that while Jesus is praying, it's then that his appearance changes Physically, his demeanor and his clothes are altered and he becomes dazzling white. In this moment is a glimpse of Jesus' glory to come. Jesus' glory to come, not just on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, but his full glory that will be seen in the coming of the clouds on his second coming. Of course, in the midst of this comes those two visitors, Moses and Elijah, who stand central to the themes of the Law and the Prophets. Jesus himself would embody all of these things, would fulfill all of these things in his mission and ministry. And in the midst of all these miraculous moments in this scene, which we could do an entire sermon series just on those few verses, could we not? We often miss when, when it comes. In verse 29, we read that all of this happened when Jesus was doing what? While he was praying. While he was praying. I think that's a valuable first lesson for us to pause and reflect upon in this transformation that happens in the transfiguration. As we think about a few lessons, just three to pull forward, let's not miss that prayer is the work. Full stop. Prayer is the work. Nothing more, nothing less. Now I say that because as Western Christians, we often think prayer is the prelude to the work. Prayer is the the thing we need to do to check in with God to make sure we're on track to get back out after the work. Um, Or when things go sideways, then we check in with him to wonder why it went sideways. We we kind of see prayer as we know we've got to do it, um, but we don't often see it as the work. It is the work. It's when we pray, when we draw our whole self into the presence of God in the throne room of grace, seeking, yes, the things we need, wisdom, healing, guidance, and direction, that the work is done there. The work is done in that moment, even before sometimes we ever see it fulfilled, if we ever do. But the work is being done in those moments. Yes, sometimes in the answers we receive, but equally, if not more importantly, is the work that's done in our own hearts as we draw ourselves into the presence of God for our own needs and for the needs of others. The shining brilliance of Jesus, of Moses, in the Old Testament, and others, it happens as they draw nearer the radiant glory of God, as they're brought into the full presence of God. It is the work whereby they lean in and listen and wait upon him. Would that we, as St. Paul reminds us elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians, pray unceasingly. Because prayer is one that transforms our very hearts. And more importantly, conforms our very hearts to the image of the one we profess our faith in. Namely, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. One Christian author noted that it's much easier to belong to a group than to belong to God. It's much easier to belong to a ministry than to belong to God. It's even much easier to belong to a church than it is to belong wholly to God. Because that means we bring our whole self, warts and all, into the presence of God, and it's there that He does His work. That as we lift up our gaze upon Him, as we align our lives under His Lordship, as we say He is the Christ with our whole selves that the work is done. So how's your prayer life? How's mine? We're on the precipice of this season of Lent that calls us to make sacrifices so that we can make more room for things such as prayer. To be about that work. I pray that we will indeed find times to do that work more fully. Now, if you're feeling convicted, I don't want to let you off the hook, but there is a bit of comfort if we look back to verse 32. I love how real um, the gospel writers bring their whole selves into the story. Um, In the midst of all that's going on, in verse 32, did you miss what the disciples are doing? While this moment is happening, one of the greatest moments in all of Scripture, while Moses and Elijah are there, while Jesus is transfigured his His clothes look different. They see him in all his glory. What are they doing? They're heavy with sleep. They're totally unaware. In fact, Luke even tells us that it's only when they become fully awake that they see what's happening. So we could infer that even in the dazzling brilliance of Jesus, Even with these angelic visitors, not angelic, but the, the prophets and the law embodied in Moses and Elijah, that, that didn't even stir their attention. It's only when they become fully awake, when they kind of come out of their slumber, that they behold this moment. Isn't God gracious? They could have missed this altogether. And yet, Jesus allows this moment to linger long enough, in his goodness, that they don't miss it. It's so gracious. They could have slept right through the whole thing. And yet, he doesn't allow them to. In a sense, he allows them to catch glimpses of what he's doing. Now, what does this have to say of us? You're here. You're not asleep. That's good, right? Um, But the spiritual principle at play, I think, is, is deep for us. It's both a comfort that if they didn't miss it, There, by the grace of God, we find comfort that hopefully God won't allow us to miss such moments, too. But there's also a word of caution, I believe, as well. A transformative second lesson about this that we shouldn't miss is don't miss what God's doing. Don't miss what God's doing. Sometimes God is so gracious with us, he won't allow us to miss it. But in those moments... When I have those kind of aha moments, like, you know, thank you, Lord, that I didn't miss what you're up to, it makes me wonder, how many times did I miss what he was up to? How many other times have we been spiritually slumbering and unaware of what God is up to? I believe in the West, and more specifically in our country, we've been spiritually slumbering for far too long. Far too long. We get lulled by the ebb and flow of life, um, the comforts that we have, and we get distracted. And we spiritually slumber and miss what God wants to do in us. He's not going to miss what he wants to do in the advancement of his kingdom, but sometimes we can get so lulled that we miss what he's about among the distractions. Instead of dedicating ourselves to his kingdom work or passively waiting, for him to bring these things about rather than bringing our hearts into his presence and asking him, what, what would he have us do? How might we join in with what he's doing? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I believe that needs to change. We need to wake up, spiritually awaken to what God purposes to do daily, and to bring our hearts into his gracious presence in prayer first and then follow his promptings thereafter to persevere and press on. It begins, it continues, it ends in prayer, yes, but it comes with making times for prayer and then times for following such promptings a priority, something we must be about. And what does that look like? I believe we find one final lesson in verse 33 and following we read that once the disciples become fully awake, once they discover what's happening and playing out in front of them, Peter, as he often does, wants to linger in the moment a bit longer, and so he says, let's make tents, let's make booths. Perhaps being a good uh, Jewish man, he thinks of the feast of booths, he thinks of ways to kind of linger in those moments a bit longer, and so he's quick to act, quick to see if that would be the case. And Luke even doesn't pull his punches. He says Peter just didn't even know what he was saying. Didn't really know what to say. And as he's speaking, what happens? A cloud overshadows them, which initially creates fear until the voice, the voice of God definitively answers from heaven who Jesus is, namely the Christ, my son, my chosen one, and then the command, listen to him. And then the cloud disperses and we know they see Jesus only as the reading ends. It's an incredible, incredible moment. And for our purposes today, for our purposes today and perhaps to carry us in our Christian journey and into this next season, I think the lesson um, is a simple one, but a simply um, profound and difficult one, that we bring ourselves into the Lord in prayer. We don't miss what he's doing, but we also recognize that the doing is actually the being. The doing is actually the being. By that I mean, um, so often we want to be busy about God's work. Or when we're excited, we want to do more things, right? And sometimes, like Peter, we're quick to speak, quick to act, quick to come up with plans, quick to um, tell God what we want to do. And sometimes God in his goodness allows the fog to descend, and we just have to sit. There may not be clarity in those moments. There, there may be, but not a plan. Um, and we're just to sit, to be, to be in his presence to not rush those times or rush out and in stride into action, but allow our hearts to be stirred in a gentle but definitive way so that as God reminds the disciples then and now that we would just listen, listen to Jesus. The action and the assignments will come. It did for the apostles, but not until they truly listened, not until they were in the midst, they were with Jesus. In fact, if he'd told them too soon what would come, perhaps they would have taken off in the other direction. They needed the strength that God would give them. Another biblical figure before us this morning, Moses, reminds us, if you think back on Moses' journey, right, so many times he hid away in God's presence. He'd he'd sit and be so long that the rest of the nation of Israel would carry on trying to do the being apart or the doing, apart from the being, and they'd get into trouble. So many times, Moses had vigorous fellowship with God about the people of Israel on their behalf, and then at times even on his own behalf, so as to say, um, Lord, why? Why do I have to put up with these people? Um, Can't you have someone else do it? Can't you just let me be with you and and be done with all of this? Um, There's many moments of back and forth between Moses and God. But there's one moment that's always troubled me. The last moment of Moses' life when he sits on the mount. He looks out on the promised land but cannot go there. If you read that passage, there's no arguing. There's no debate. There's no discussion. Silence. Moses had accepted that, I think. But I think Moses, after all of his ministry, after all of his life, had reached a place where he had a deep understanding that the being is the doing. One Christian author, this phrase has been something I've been ruminating on a lot, wrote of this moment, for Moses, the presence of God was the promised land. For Moses, the presence of God was the promised land. It wasn't doing the things God wanted him to do. It wasn't being the leader and the monks of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people. It wasn't being revered or respected. All he wanted was to be in the presence of God. There was no debate because in that moment, he's in God's presence and he doesn't have to carry on anymore. It's beautiful. And then full spectrum, he's in the presence of God and the presence of Jesus Christ in this moment. It's incredible. Don't miss that as we do things as a church, We're called to be present, because that's where God is, when we're present with him. One whereby we call our whole selves into the presence of God in prayer. One whereby, with eyes wide open, we see what God is doing and ask where we can join in. But in the midst of it all, we realize that the deepest reason we do these things is merely to be and abide with him. That is the work he calls us to. So that as we go out to carry his name into the world, as we move into new horizons, as we are transformed in new ways, we remember that it's in those moments that we're pulled forward into the presence of Jesus so that, not unlike that picture of Hikmet, maybe by God's grace, when we see Jesus, there's a before and after, some transformation that's taken place in us. Maybe it's just a little bit, but maybe we look a bit more like he is, daily drawn into the presence of Jesus, whereby, by his grace, we become as he is and enter into his presence forevermore. May we reflect on that as we transition into this season of Lent and begin to think about the ways that we can abide with him more fully so that we may become as Jesus is, more fully embracing him and then more fully embracing the world for his sake recognizing that in all the tumult of this life what the world needs is the presence of Jesus who alone can redeem restore and heal every single place and area until by his grace it's redeemed when he returns in all of his glory which we catch glimpses of this morning forevermore where he reigns and rules in his presence on earth and where we get to join him toward that end as we persevere to the end in his name. To his honor and to his glory, may we press on through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.